The following Dharma discourse was given by Jeffrey Shugan Arnold at Zen Mountain Monastery. Shugan Roshi is the head of the Mountains and Rivers Order and abbot of the monastery. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you would like to make a donation or find out more about our various programs, visit us online at zmn.org. Thank you for listening. This is from the Book of Serenity, Cohen Collection, <clears throat> Nanquan's Peony, The Pointer. Yangshan takes a dream for reality. Nanquan points to wakefulness as unreal. If one knows that wakefulness and dreaming are fundamentally non-existent, for the first time one will believe unreality and reality are absolute. But tell me, what eye does this person have? In the main case, <clears throat> Officer Lu Geng said to Nanquan, Teaching Master Zhao was quite extraordinary. He was able to say, Heaven and earth have the same root. Myriad things are one body. Nanquan pointed to a peony in the garden and said, People today see this flower as in a dream. The verse. Shining through detachment and subtlety, the root of creation. Appearing and disappearing in profusion, you see the gate. Letting the spirit roam outside of time, what question could there be? Setting eyes before the body, you know ineffable being. When the tiger roars, blowing on the cliff starts, moaning. When the dragon howls, moving clouds over the caves are dark. Nanquan breaks up the dream of people of the time, wanting knowledge of the magnificent, honored one to be. So we're concluding an introductory retreat this morning. And I was thinking about presenting this koan in the language of koans and the language that is so pervasive within the Zen teachings and not unique to Zen, but, but very strongly characteristic of the Zen teachings. And I was just thinking about how teachings are conveyed. So, for instance, think of the Four Noble Truths. So, life is dukkha, that arises from thirst. There is cessation, nirvana, and there's the path. So, we can read that and memorize it, be able to recite that. But if we want to take it any further, then we have to ask, well, what, does, what is dukkha? Well, the Buddha said, dukkhas, pain and suffering, sorrow and lamentation, in short, the five aggregates. And to understand that, we have to ask, well, what are the five aggregates? And what are sorrow, sadness, pain, suffering? Those are words. What does it mean to thirst over and over again for something? What is, what is attachment? Not what does it mean, but what is it? And so as we continue to inquire, we begin to, um, well, this is where the teachings, in a sense, find different ways. Sometimes the teachings continue to present language that makes sense and sort of guides you with instructions and explains where you are and what's up ahead. And there are other teachings that teach in a different way. They use language to in essence, present you with that actual reality, present you with the mind of that experience. So 
here is the person seeking an awareness, a a, a state of mind, a, a, a realization, a more true reality. And so there are instructions that sort of instruct you as to how to proceed. And then there are other teachings that present you with that very mind itself. And when we encounter teachings of that sort, if our mind is not yet attuned to that, then it will seem difficult, hard to understand, opaque. And that's not just your experience. (laughs) And so that's both presenting us with that very thing that we're seeking, but it's also an invitation. I spoke about, I think on Friday, in the introduction about how, I don't know if it was Friday or some other time, but (laughs) about how the liturgy and the teachings are intended to guide and inspire, and in that way become trustworthy guides, but they're also intended to provoke, to discomfort you or rather, more accurately, to bring forth the discomfort that's already there. New and more discomfort doesn't really need to be created. We bring plenty with us. And so I say all of that as a way of helping to understand the intention, the, 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 um, what's going on with these teachings, and that you encounter different ways of teaching in the Buddhist tradition, because it's all dealing with the fundamental challenge of how do you give voice to that which has no words, ultimately? How do you express the inexpressible? How do you bring a person into that aspect of themselves that in which in order to encounter, they have to leave everything behind. They have to let go of everything. That the words themselves, at a certain point as guides, can only take you so far, and then you have to leave them too, no matter how true and eloquent they are. In the pointer, he speaks of Yangshan takes a dream for reality. This refers to another koan in the same collection, where Yangshan was a teacher, dreams that he was at the the, the Maitreya's place, the, the Buddha of the future, doing zazen in the teaching hall, and he was asked to give a talk. And he went to the teaching seat and said, the dharma of the great vehicle is beyond any predication, any idea. That was his talk. So here he says, Yangshan takes a dream for reality. Nanquan, as in this case, points to wakefulness as unreal. In the pointer, in the commentary, says, I have talked of a dream. First, there is someone who doesn't sleep, and then there is sleep. So we might say that first when we enter, before we enter into practice, and all throughout, there is someone who isn't sleeping. There's someone whose eyes never close, wide awake. We call that Buddha nature. We call that our natural mind. He says, but then there is sleep. And so we come into this world wide awake. We are born awake. But then we begin to go to sleep. We come under a spell, an illusion that is universal. It's not just you. (laughs) It's not your fault. It's not a flaw. It's not a mistake. 
it very logically happens because of the way we perceive the world through our senses, and the world seems like it's out there, seems pretty obvious. We can touch it. It's not me. And that seems to be pretty much what it's about, sums it up. And the Buddha said, that is how it appears, but that's not how it is. And so in that sleep, we come under the spell of that sense of things. And as we get older, the dream gets deeper because we are in it longer. And he says, because of not awakening from this sleep, there are dreams. And by dreams, scenes are seen. We see things. And based on these scenes, you see the existence of another body applying discernment within the senses. You see yourself, you see other people having opinions and ideas, saying this is right and this is wrong, you should do this, you shouldn't do that. Then he says, if you know the one who never sleeps, then all of these complications would fall away of their own. And the, 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 the idea, the image of, or the analogy of a dream is used frequently in Buddhism because it's so apt that when we're sleeping and we're dreaming, it's real to us. Right? We don't know that we're dreaming. We're experiencing something. We're seeing it. We're feeling it. We're responding to it. Our body is responding. It can be wonderful. It can be frightening. It can be boring. And then we wake up. And we realize, oh, I was dreaming. It's not real. And Buddhism, the Dharma uses that analogy because it's pretty much like this, right? When we're having a sleeping dream, we know that that's something my mind is doing while sleeping. And what Buddhism says is this is something my mind is doing while not sleeping, while awake. And so to see into that dream, and the faith miner says, if the eye never sleeps, then all dreams will naturally cease. Really exactly what the commentator just said. And I was thinking about today how, I mean, people have always lived within dream times, within their own sense of reality and the images and the thoughts and the projections in their mind in every time, but we may be living in the in the dream time of all dream times, where we have such clear and crisp and perfect images of people and things and situations and disasters and joys and triumphs and their voices and their moving. And we know that it's an image and it's not the person, kind of. We kind of know that. I mean, I've read that, you know, starting with early television and television characters and shows, that people knew that they were watching a television show, but they thought that those characters were, that's who they were. So they would, what was it, Doc, Marcus Welby, Dr. Welby, something, there was a show. They would come up to him on the street and say, listen, I have an ailment, can you help me with it? <laughs> Grown-up people, people who know what's real and not real. It's a representation of something. We know it's not the thing itself, kind of. We know that and we don't know that. We know it intellectually, but we respond to it as though it's a thing itself. We confuse them. Our mind confuses them. It seems to have its own reality. And now with artificial intelligence, I don't know, 
Maybe all bets are off. Dreams within dreams within dreams. How will we know? If we don't know now, how will we know as we create worlds whose whole intention is to, a sense, be not recognizable with reality? Because then it's more real. And what a wonderful dream to be able to create the dream of your own choosing and be able to fall in love with it or have it fall in love with you or answer all your questions or write your paper or do all the stuff that's so bloody bothersome. And so then we'll have so much time to do what exactly? <laughs> Samsara is when the dream is taken for real, when we, what we experience we assume is all there is to experience. It is the thing itself. It is what we can rely upon. But if that was all true, Buddhism being a tradition that's based in the evidence of what we see, then why is it all working? Why doesn't that all work out? Why are we so often disappointed? In the Lankavatara Sutra, which is an important sutra in the Mahayana and in Zen, Tibetan Buddhism, it's the sutra that in our tradition, Bodhidharma is said to have brought with him from India and transmitted. It speaks a lot about the projections of the mind, the nature of mind, and how the mind projects, casts views and illusions and images onto things, but without knowing. We don't know that we're doing that because it happens so quickly, it happens so deftly. And in that sutra it says, mm, Projections arise when there is attachment to the misperception of different things. Because people are unaware that there are attachments to projections of what they grasp and of the one who is grasping are nothing but perceptions of the mind. Because we're not aware of that, we fall prey to views of existence and non-existence, of being and not being, to which they are abetted, we are abetted by the views of the followers of other paths and the habit energy of their projections. And I thought, what an incredibly timely statement. That when we fall under the, 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 our own misperceptions and don't understand how we are projecting those misperceptions onto others, onto people, onto situations, onto objects, and that that will be supported and strengthened by the views of others who are doing the same thing. And that we fall under the influence of their projections and their habit energies, in other words, their delusions, their attachments. So there's driving under the influence, there's living under the influence, living while intoxicated by the views of others, by the views of ourselves. Can we even tell the difference? Real means something that actually exists as a thing that is occurring, in fact, in and of itself, from a Buddhist perspective. It's not imagined. It's not conjectured. And Buddhism actually recognized that there is a way of, of discerning reality that is based on inference, where we can't directly perceive something. right? So I can say with some confidence that there's a maple a beautiful grand maple standing out in the front yard because I've seen it for almost 40 years and watched it grow. 
and its leaves come every spring and fall every autumn. But I don't know, actually, in this moment that it's there. I don't know that. And so there's correct inference. There's inference where it's actually true. I'll walk out the door and probably it's there. But I don't actually know it. And Buddhism is actually very concerned about that. What can we actually know? Because that's the basis upon which everything else happens. What we think, what we believe, the views we create, the words we speak, the actions we engage. That's why Buddhism is so focused on perception, on the nature of mind. So that if I want to understand the Four Noble Truths, if I want to understand dukkha, if I want to understand sorrow and lamentation and the aggregates, Ultimately, I have to understand, but what is the nature of sorrow? Because if I just leave it at sorrow and sadness, I would just want to get rid of them, right? I just don't want to have them in my life. Can you do that for me, please? And Buddhism says just wanting not to have them is part of your having them. It's how we keep them going. It's only when we understand the nature of these things things, that then we understand ourselves. We understand things. We understand each other. And so the Buddha in the sutra asks, so how do we get free of our attachment to a self or what belongs to a self? So you can think of all the things that we sort of consider as our possessions, not just physical possessions, but the possessions of our identity, our characteristics, the things we see as who we are? How do we free ourselves of our attachment to these things and get free of the misconception of causation as cause and effect? And the Buddha says, by becoming aware that, there, that these projections are nothing but your mind. And thus they, we are transformed in body and mind and finally see clearly all stages and realms of existence. And so... What the Buddha realizes is that all things are empty of being, self-being, own being, of any intrinsic being. And we only know them because we perceive them. That's the only way we know anything is. It's the only way we know that we're sitting in this hall right now. And so what if our instruments of perception, or more accurately, our consciousness that is in a sense, the, the heart or the, the integral part of our perception, what if it's cloudy? What if it's not experiencing things clearly? But it, we don't know that, right? We only, we only know what we experience, and it seems clear to me, right? I don't look at it and see a cloud. And so raising bodhicitta, raising the aspiration for the practice and enlightenment, in a way, has to include having some doubts. What is actually going on? How does this work? If with the best of intentions and all that I can muster, I keep trying to bring myself free of these patterns of cycles and cycles of behavior and thought and everything, and I keep finding myself in the same patterns, what it, not, not necessarily what am I not doing, but what am I not understanding? The faith mind says when the real nature of things is not understood, then the mind's basic peace will be disturbed. If you turn that around, 
Just think, at every moment when the, my mind's basic peace is disturbed, I have an understanding. But what that line is saying is my understanding is not in a tune, and not in accord with what's actually happening. There's something that I'm not seeing. And so here, <clears throat> this disciple of Nanquan, who is one of the great teachers in the Zen tradition, they were walking in the garden, and he quoted in a poem that Master Zhao had written. And he says, Master Zhao was quite extraordinary. He said, heaven and earth have the same root. Myriad things are one body. All things have one nature. A basic Buddhist teaching. And not just heaven and earth, but male and female, black, white, and brown, heaven and hell, right and wrong, young and old, rich and poor, all of the dualities have one nature. Avalokiteshvara realizes the nature of mind. All things have one essence, we chant it today. And so this is the very basis of not just Buddhism, but of liberation in Buddhism, is to realize that things are not fixed, have no inherent nature, do not have their own power. How do they gain power? Mind. I mean, think about it. If all things have the same nature, we know that thoughts on some level are impermanent, right? Because everyone you've ever had is gone now, right? Where are they? Right? So they don't last. We know that. Even if they return and seem like they're the same thoughts, they're not. Because you can't think it again. You're just having a thought that is familiar, similar, some some same characteristics. But it's new. It's never been thought again. And then once it's gone, it's gone forever. So we know that thoughts have no basic, inherent, intrinsic nature. They come and go. But if that's true, then why do some thoughts not affect you at all? And some affect you very much because of our perception of them, what they mean to us, what we have made them mean, what others have made them mean. And so even though the thought itself is empty of any intrinsic value or characteristic or meaning, they seem to come with a lot of meaning. But that's not in, a thought is just sound, right? It's just sound that we have organized different sounds and given different meanings so we can communicate. It's incredible. It's amazing. It's magic. But when we impute them with intrinsic value, then they become dangerous. But does that mean that because things are empty, that nothing has any meaning or purpose or value? How is that not nihilism? The Buddha said, once people think of desire or anger and delusion as actually existing in and of itself, then we imagine that the non-existence of desire, anger, and delusion, that if we can only not perceive its existence, then the characteristics of that will become still. In other words, believing that they actually exist and they're causing us a lot of trouble, if I could just get rid of them, if I could make them not exist, right? Sounds like a good idea, right? Okay, so how do we do that? So before practice, well, we suppress, we numb, we deny, we distract, we blame. There are lots of ways. We just turn our back in any number of ways, but it doesn't really work very well. Well, what if through practice, we can realize that it's empty? It doesn't exist. 
and then just live in that place. They're gone. They don't exist. That's their nature, is non-existent, which is actually true, partly. And so that becomes a, an aspect of training, an important aspect of training, because if we attach really to an idea of emptiness, an idea of something having no intrinsic characteristic, because you can't attach to the thing itself, because it's not a thing. You know, it's like, how do you attach to space? Like, do it right now. Right? You can't do it. Right? Because it's not a thing you can hold on to. So all we can attach to is the, my idea of that thing, which is enough. <laughs> and so the Buddha says, this is why, because of all of the danger of that, because if somebody believes that that's what liberation is, then they really have turned their back on the world. In a sense, they have become dangerous because nothing exists, which, which means nothing does matter. And so the Buddha says, this is why I say it is better to believe in a self as big as Mount Sumeru than to give rise to the vain and empty view of nothingness. Well, there are some who have already arrived at that place. (laughs) A self as big as Mount Sumeru. But it's interesting that he says this, isn't it? This is the Buddha. His whole teaching is is based on the, the, the... distinct possibility we have to liberate ourselves through the direct experience of things in their true nature, which is empty. And he's saying, but I would rather that we believe in the sense of self that is bigger than a mountain than to live under that false view. He says, this is what is meant by nihilism. And Buddhism has, since the time of the Buddha, been very, very clear that that is not Buddha's teaching. That's why he said it is a middle path. So what is the remedy? How do we free ourselves? And so we we learn how to sit zazen, and you sit down, very simple, and you turn your attention to the breath, and the worlds upon worlds, within worlds, the dreams upon dreams, within dreams, come to visit you so we can see them and begin to open our eyes from within the dream and realize this is my mind. That when you're sitting quietly, sincerely doing your zazen and the person next to you is breathing loudly, distracting you, and you get irritated because it keeps distracting you, and they keep doing it, and you get more irritated and more frustrated, and then you're really, like, getting pissed off. Like, why won't they? Where is that? Is that in that person next to it? Is it in their heavy breathing? It's in the mind. And we can watch it go from nothing to something. Just watch it. We can watch ourselves build that house. And we can watch ourselves doing it and not understand what we're seeing, and so nothing changes. Or we can see and understand, but not do anything about it, and it continues. (laughs) So awareness enough is not, alone is not enough. Or we can see and understand and shift. 
The Buddha says, I teach existence to refute the nihilistic view that nothing exists. So when somebody is grabbing onto the notion of emptiness, he teaches, no, it exists. You are here. Anger is something. He says, and I do this so my disciples will accept samsara. So they will accept that this life involves the variations of karmic actions. If we don't accept samsara, then how can we address it? And so when Nanquan students said, isn't it wonderful that heaven and earth have the same root? Myriad things are one body. And Nanquan points to a peony and says, people today see this flower as if they were in a dream. What he's saying is, see it. Touch it. Smell it. Now see it again, free of your ideas of flower or peony. Touch it, smell it, free of those projections. And then he says, now see it again with your whole body and mind. Touch it throughout the whole body. See it free of subject and object. Free of the idea that it and you are distinctly different. In other words, come closer. Experience it intimately. The Buddha realized that all suffering essentially arises through a lack of intimacy, separation, distance. The more distance something becomes, the more dim it is in our view. It's harder to see it. We don't see its qualities. We don't, our senses become more distant. And that distance breeds callousness, indifference, objectification, rationalizing, meanness. Right? When something is no longer a living thing, or if it's a lesser living thing, then it's not the same as you. And that is the gateway to every form of harm. And whether that's directed outwards or whether it's directed towards ourselves, we do the same thing with ourselves. We objectify, we distant, distance, and then we can do anything towards ourselves, including extinguishing this life. And so Zazen is, that's the revolution, is calling us in to that false sense of distance. So think about how hateful speech, racist, xenophobic, transphobic, political party-phobic speech, over and over and over again, and that's very important. Habits are formed through repetition. False, false things become true through repetition. Contact becomes distance through repetition. Sensation becomes numb through repetition. And that's why those things, hateful speech and action, are the instruments of suffering of all forms of oppression, to dehumanize, to make other, to deny basic qualities, to attribute blame, to make something a threat, to make it less. And so the Dharma says, stop. There's a story of the Buddha. There's a mass murderer at the time of the Buddha, Angulamala, and he saw the Buddha, and he, he had... There was a whole sort of horrific contract under 
under, that he was operating under, he had one more killing that he needed to do, and he saw the Buddha, and he thought, okay, this will be my last. And so he was running after the Buddha, trying to catch up with him. The Buddha was just walking. But Angulimala couldn't catch up with him. The Buddha was just walking calmly, and he was running, and he couldn't catch up with him. And finally, he called out and says, why won't you stop? And the Buddha stopped and turned to him and said, I have stopped. When will you? He became the Buddha's disciple. So he could learn how to stop. But stopping alone is not enough. We have to see. Stop and see. And so that's why, for those of you here for the weekend, after putting your things in your room and giving you a little bit of food, the very first order of things is teaching Zazen. This is how. This is how we turn that around, how we create a revolution, right? A peaceful revolution. And so in Hongzhou's poem, he says, shining through detachment and subtlety, the root of creation, appearing and disappearing in profusion, you see the gate, Form is emptiness, emptiness form. All things, Buddhism teaches, arises from this, the non-abiding nature of all things. All things arise from their basic state of lacking anything intrinsic. That's how we know them. Appearing and disappearing. In profusion, things come and go, come and go, come and go, come and go. So when we attach to things, and get bound up into them, we're like, define the nature of that very thing to come and go. That's why it hurts. (laughs) That's why it takes so much, that's why it exhausts us. Because we're trying to hold, it's like trying to defy gravity. It's like trying to push back a river. The river is meant to flow. And so Zazen is not about, really not about developing any skills to, to create some sort of miracle. It's about really just getting out of the way, or maybe more accurately, being in the way, finally, in the true way. Why? So that you can let your spirit roam outside of time, move freely. That's why these images of the tiger roaring, the dragon howling, these great creatures, powerful spiritual beings who move freely, unencumbered. But here, in the world, There's an interesting, wonderful passage in the Vimalakirti Sutra where the goddess rains flowers down upon a whole host of the of the Buddha's disciples, who are their monastic rule is to not adorn themselves with anything. They're not allowed to adorn themselves. No adornment, right? They're monks, and so she showers all of these flowers down, and they fall on these monks, and they stick. So now their robes are covered with flowers, and they don't like that, right? And so Shadiputra, who's one of the great disciples, says, Goddess, these flowers are not proper for religious persons. And so we're trying to shake them off. They're trying to get them off. And she says, what's, what's going on? Why are you doing that? And he says, they're not proper. We shouldn't be wearing these, right? And the goddess says, don't say that, Shadiputra. Why? These flowers are proper indeed. Why? Because these flowers have no constructed thoughts or discriminate discrimination. They're not discriminating. 
They're not improper or proper. They're not right or wrong. But the elder Shadiputra has both constructed thoughts and discrimination. <laughs> you are filled with right and wrong, proper and improper. Why do you take that out on these lovely, free flowers? She says, Shadiputra, impropriety for one who has renounced the world for the teaching of the rightly taught Dharma consists of constructural thought and discrimination. That is how to be improper, is to be caught up, to continue to be caught up in our ideas and projections and take them as true and, and fixed. And she said, so all of you trying to shake them off are filled with such thoughts. One who is free of such thoughts is always proper. You're always abiding where you are. You're always complete within yourself. She says, evil spirits, for instance, have power over those who are fearful, but they cannot disturb the fearless. Likewise, those intimidated by fear of the world are in the power of forms and sounds and smells and tastes and textures. In other words, not in the not in the not um, disturbed by the things themselves, but by our perceptions of them. But those things do not disturb those who are free from fear, who are free of their attachments. And so the Buddha says, "The world may quarrel with me, but I don't quarrel with the world." I have no quarrel with the world. And that's a basic truth of Buddhism. Nothing is denied. Even all the terrible things, the delusion, the ignorance, the hatred, the greed. Because if we deny them, where will we put them? And what will you do when they arise in you? It doesn't mean that they're, you know, ignored. But Buddhism is acknowledging the whole of reality so we can face the whole of reality, see into it, understand it, liberate ourselves from it. Nanquan breaks up the dream of people of the time, wanting you to have knowledge of the magnificent honored one to be. Well, who might that be? The honored one to be. The footnote to that says, this place, this compassionate one. It's personal. And it's not someone else. So I'll end with a poem. Before you ask the question, there is already one who knows. Before you take a step, you have already arrived. Before the time has passed, the time has come. Having entered the room, now take your rightful place at the table for the banquet you yourself have so carefully prepared. Thank you for listening. To find out more about ZMM's programs, retreats and residency, please visit us online at zmm.org.